0: Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate Batteries. Outrageously dependable.
1: Welcome to the Hunt of Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 62, John Wallace, Wild Meats and Holiday Treats. Nick is joined by John Wallace, an ace of a wild game cook and works for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. The guys talk about how John ended up with five whitetails and how he processed all of them out of his garage. They also dive into the holiday dishes with wild game from platters to centerpieces. I hope this is a conversation that gets you in the holiday mood to make your wild game festive. Well, hey folks, beautiful, chilly night here in Michigan. First time, I think I said burr all month. It's kind of been mild. Um, really feeling like I'm trying to get the uh, the dark beers out. Uh, actually cracked tonight one of those CBS's that I was uh, putting on Instagram earlier. I tell you, it's got a very bitter front and then mellows out really sweet on the end. I really like the maple finish that this has. But enough about the beer. We're here to talk about meat we're here to talk about our holiday treats and I've brought in an amazing guest tonight our guest tonight hails from the state that I usually don't mention by name and in fact uh, the big game that was supposed to happen will never happen Uh, Ohio and Michigan don't get to play this year being a state fan I guess I'm just going to watch from the sideline anyway uh, but I am here with the bearded man from Ohio. I am here with John Wallace. John, thank you so much for uh, giving us some time here uh, this evening. Were you uh, were you hoping for that game? Are you a big OSU fan? Oh, most certainly. Thanks for having me. And
2: uh, I didn't know whether we were going to discuss it or not tonight, but uh, yeah, just a few short hours ago, got the news that uh, it was canceled. So Definitely not good news. Uh, I think we're going to put seriously a pretty high number on uh, Mr. Jim Harbaugh this year, but uh, hopefully the big Ten will make it right. And uh, Ohio season will still potentially end on a very, very high note. So good deal. uh, Yeah.
1: You guys uh, are ranked what number
2: four right now? Four right four right now. Yeah. We've been cruising. So uh, we'll see if they schedule a game or are they talking about a possible rematch with Indiana? Um, A lot's in the air right now. So as an Ohio state fan, it's, not the best news today, but uh, we shall see.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, over in East Lansing, we're uh, we're just on the rebuild phase. You know, we're we're just building back our defense. We got the new coach, and he's yep. he's been doing really well for us. Um, but yeah, it's definitely one of those like we're just eating popcorn, watching the big boys definitely slug it out this year. Nice. Um, but John, hailing down from Ohio, what do you do on a day to day basis? You know, we we jump onto Facebook, which your your handle is Wild Game Cook. Um, If you haven't done that, you definitely need to go over and start following John here. Um, But it looks like you spend a ton of time outdoors. What do you do for your day-to-day job?
2: Yep. So uh, day-to-day, I'm lucky enough to work for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So uh, Habitat Nonprofit, they're based out of Minnesota, but we have chapters all over the U.S. There's actually a, a good crop of Pheasants Forever chapters in Michigan, and uh, I provide customer service to all of those volunteers in Ohio. I have 29 chapters and I also serve chapters in West Virginia and Virginia. And I've got one chapter in West Virginia. I've got four chapters of Quail Forever in Virginia and uh, just kind of their go-to resource uh, right now with all things COVID, you know, like what's fundraising look like coming up this spring? Uh, So we're working on that. Uh, I typically try to get out to some of their mentored hunts. A lot of my chapters host uh, youth hunts, uh, women's hunts now. Uh, veterans hunts, and uh, just try to be a resource for them. But a lot of what you see on social media, it's not as much as you may think, but uh, I do try to get out uh, and hunt everything a little bit, and I try to get the kids out with me. Uh, My boys are 10 and 11, and uh, they really came into their own this year. So uh, basically customer service rep for volunteers for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever.
1: Excellent, excellent. And being right there in your central location, you just mentioned, like you try to chase everything, being in Ohio – it, I was surprised, just traveling through Ohio, um, east side of the state is fairly rugged. I mean, Appalachia almost at some points where there's a lot of a lot of elevation, a lot of drainages, hardwood forests. And then on the west side, real flat, corn belt, ag, probably fitting really well into uh, upland habitat at that point, really trying to get some uh, pheasants established. You, you're kind of like in a little hotbed there where just even within the state you're able to get a real varied uh, amount of habitat so that when it comes to chasing especially here stuff here in the Midwest, you kind of have like the banquet put in front of you.
2: Sure. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, I'll tell you this. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm from Ohio, born and raised and uh, about six years ago I moved to Missouri uh, and I did the same job for pheasant, River and Quail for out there for six years. So you want to talk about where all the worlds come together. Uh, So I left that to come back to family, which I don't uh, hesitate for a second to make that decision. But where I'm at, specifically around the Dayton area, uh, and a little bit north of me is where I'm from, is uh, kind of a void land of no birds, not a lot of upland habitat. Um, It's real flat. Uh, The deer basically congregate in the small woodlots that are around. Uh, But within a short drive, within an hour and a half Uh, Definitely less than two hour drive. I can get into wild uh, pheasants. The pheasants typically run uh, in the center part of the state along the uh, Scioto River uh, watershed and then uh, north of Columbus and then that northwest part of the state uh, up there near Michigan. There's definitely some pockets of wild roosters up that way. Uh, Quail are generally located in the southwest part of the state, which is more kind of woolly, woody draws, more pasture land, not as much ag land. Um, that eastern part and southeastern part is what you know we call the unglaciated part. A lot of people just refer to it as Southeast Ohio when they're talking about deer and turkey hunting. Uh, but that's all unglaciated, lots of ridges and uh, national forest. And then that glaciated flat portion, which is more of where I'm from. Um, you know, I've got access to uh, you know deer, like said, so we, we were able to get on a property close to the house here probably within 30 minutes and um, my kids were able to drop a couple. Uh, Bird hunting, I can travel. Uh, I've got, you know, an hour and a half's reach to get into some birds and uh, turkeys is where right now, you know, in order to get to them, I'd have to get to that southeastern part. But uh, it's a wildlife state for sure. Uh, I picked where I live based upon location and proximity to family, uh, which is, you know, really important to get back to after being gone for a few years. But uh, I'm also only seven hours away from uh, Columbia, Missouri, which is where we were before. So Missouri's not too far away. And we had some success over there this fall, too.
1: Good deal. So yeah, you do a little bit, do a little bit of, uh, traveling. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard that as well as from Missouri that it is one of those feaster or famine things. Like you come through an area and you're like, man, there just doesn't seem to any, be anything here. And then you just instantly like another mile later, walk into Mecca when it comes to upland or even just, um, habitat for deer at that point. So that's a really neat perspective. And yeah, I just, you know, it's almost like the four corners you've each got, they've got their own specialty, um with yeah Cedar Point tucked in right up there
2: next to Erie. Yeah, and crazy enough the highest turkey harvest county in the state is Ashtabula, which is in the severe northeast corner. I think it's typ- It's I think it's hands in a way typically the number one county for turkeys. And it's actually in the northeast corner up by Pennsylvania. Um other other counties kill a ton of turkeys too, but yeah, a lot of people travel to the south to kill deer but they're not the biggest deer, right? You get into those flat grain-fed deer, and they're huge, big body, big thick racks. Um, you know, Southern Ohio has killed some giants. You know, some three hundred-inch deer over the years. Um, so, with Ohio, it's ninety-eight percent of the state's privately owned. So, it's really tough to get on good public land. Um, so, hopefully, we can you know work with Pheasants Forever to get some land acquisitions here and uh, open up some more public hunting. And then the, the Division of Wildlife is is tentatively looking into or starting to roll out some pilot areas for like walk-in access, um, which would be huge for Ohio uh, because there's so little public land. So looking forward to that.
1: That is surprising uh, to know that there's not that much public land uh, coming out of your state Um, with like, just as you mentioned with pheasants forever, is that, are you looking at more like partnerships with landowners or are you like trying to, like you just said, like um, the department of wildlife, trying to work in areas where yeah like you have the hap land or you have like a cp or a crp where where people are able to to use that at the you know even though the the own the landowner owns it they're able to walk on is that is that kind of the aim that you guys are looking to
2: hopefully partner oh. with uh, well, so CRP doesn't, uh, at least in Ohio, and I'm pretty sure across the country, CRP doesn't grant access for public walk-in access. You still have to get permission from the landowner and whatnot. You don't have to be a member or anything like that, but it's, it just works as it normally would any other property. You have to go get landowner permission. Um, but we actually, as Pheasants Forever, sometimes we do acquire land, and then we typically turn it over to the state to manage. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of the middle person to get it acquired. We use chapter dollars as match. Uh, apply for grants, and then just completely open it to public access. Um, But then we also have 14 biologists here in the state uh, that work with private landowners to enhance their property, again, for for conservation like CRP and such. Um, And again, I oftentimes get phone calls, you know, hey, uh, do I gotta be a member to hunt that Pheasants Forever property? And it's like, well, I think just the landowner has a sign out there, you know, that where the chapter helped with funding, or maybe they're a member. But, you know, it doesn't hurt to go knock on the door and, uh, you know, give give them an ask. So um, hopefully we can get some more access. You know, 2% definitely is not a lot. And then, again, coming from my brief history there in Missouri, 7% of the state is open, which is obviously three times the amount. Um, And like I said, even that's not as much as when you start to get out west how much public land there really is. So we're a little bit uh, shaded or whatever you want to call it. Uh, You know, we're sheltered over here in the east as far as the, the percentage of public land, you know.
1: So now you had your start uh, in the outdoor world. Where did that begin? Like if I were to find the beginning of the John Wallace story, getting involved
2: with the outdoors, sure. uh, did your
1: passion come into the outdoors first or into the culinary?
2: Sure. So uh, I'll get to the latter first. The culinary stuff didn't come until college. Um, and that's basically when I found out there was no one to cook dinner for me anymore. So I had to start cooking for myself. Uh, <laughs> But I uh, grew up in the outdoors. We belonged to a rod and gun club uh, locally, and they had a private campground, so we had a camper, and I'd always go up there fishing. Uh, I mean, two, three weekends out of the summer, we'd be up there fishing, you know, kind of hiking through the woods, so I cut my teeth, uh, doing a lot of, you know, bluegill bass, catfishing. Um, and when I turned 12, uh, was when I started getting going out with my uncle, uh, would take me out squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting. I think I was 14 when I went on my first deer hunt. Uh, killed my first deer at 15 and then uh, I was able to drive myself down to deer camp once I you know, got a little older, and uh, again, we'd always hunt down at Tar Hollow State Park in the southeast part of the state, and uh, had deer camp down there, and that deer camp's still going on. I haven't made it down there since I've been back, but uh, it's still happening, and uh, looking forward to taking my boys down there. Um, but I was pretty much a deer, deer and squirrel hunter uh, before moving to Missouri. I did a little bit of waterfowl hunting. You know, again, public land waterfowl hunting here in Ohio is, is not all that great, um, So I I moved to Missouri and that's when bird hunting opened up for me. So I did do some dove hunting here in Ohio, but that was the extent of my wing shooting. And then you go to Missouri and of course there's quail and pheasants everywhere. And so I got into that. That's actually the first year I started turkey hunting was in 2014. That first spring I was out there actually killed a bearded hen within the first hour of my first hunt. And I said, man, this turkey hunting stuff's easy. You know, I (laughs) I don't know what all the fuss is about. And it took me like a year and a half, like, the rest of that year I hunted hard and then a long part of the next season I hunted hard before I finally got my first gobbler. And, uh, so I definitely, I definitely earned that one, but, uh, it has come up in in an outdoorsy family. Like I said, we belong to the Rod and Gun Club. My, my parents directly didn't hunt, um, but my uncles did. And, um, you know, just kind of each year I kind of just add something new to the mix, you know, and, uh, I said, I hunt everything a little bit, you know, there's not one thing I'm really dedicated towards. A lot of people think I'm a, I'm an avid bird hunter because I work with for pheasants forever and I love to bird hunt, but I only do it a couple times a year. You know, I, I deer hunt to fill the freezer and I do all the other stuff to just kind of, you know, cause it's fun. It's an escape from uh, the grind that, you know, that is so.
1: Good deal. Yeah, that does. It complicates my next question because I'm going to ask what is your favorite critter to chase? And you know, with work you're, you're with the feather, but at the same time to fill the freezer comes the fur. So Sure. I, I'm sure being a generalist, you're like, you know what, if I can chase it, I'm all about it.
2: Sure. So it, it, I've, I've actually, over the years, I've probably narrowed down the list pretty good again. I love deer hunting because it fills the freezer. Right. But it, so it's, it's a, it's a function. And when it all comes together, obviously there's nothing better than when you're able to harvest a deer, but there's a lot of downtime uh, in between that. And for those reasons, I, I didn't turkey hunt for a long time because I knew it would consume me. And, you know, turkey hunting is probably one of my favorite things to do. Uh, the only thing that could probably compete with it would be uh, kind of a bluebird day where you've got mallards fluttering in your face at 15 yards. Um, you know, you're you're either in a field or you're in a, a flooded corn, and it's just it's just right. You know, the weather's right, the wind's right, the the ducks are moving. Um, outside of that, duck hunting can really be a lot of hard work, and it's not something I look forward to when you. You're going out there and you get skunked. It's a lot of work moving the decoys, but when it's right, man, there's few things that are better. Especially, uh, I've got a five-year-old lab, and uh, if he's out there making those retrieves, it makes it all better.
1: Amen, amen. It is a lot of fun. I found it was a like getting into waterfowling. I've only been a couple times, but you're going from basically an individual sport into a team sport when you're sitting there and you know, you, you got to do your job, but at the same time, you can't do the job of the guy next to you. You know, you're all, you're all working for the same, same thing. And I, I found that a hard transition going from the deer woods into sitting in a blind with, you know, side-by-side with four guys, like the the whole camaraderie of being able to like talk and laugh and, and have a good time. I'm over there sitting there just like real quiet, real still thinking like, you know what? No, we got to be quiet. We got to be still. And it was just a hard transition. So it's, It's great to hear from guys like you that, like, no, I'll take the duck hunting any day when it comes, like, yeah, like you said, like a clear day, and here come the mallards.
2: Sure, and I definitely don't mind a full blind. A lot of times with those bigger blinds, you're maybe cooking breakfast, so you got some breakfast burritos going, and you may never even see a duck, and those can be some really good hunts, Uh, but you could also, you know, uh, go on a solo hunt, just you and the dog, and you're kind of walking in, and uh, you set up, and, you know, so it can be both if you're really looking to break away and have that solo experience and that way you know that you accomplished tricking that flock of greenheads to come in and land or get close to your decoys uh is a pretty rewarding feeling even if you just scratch out a couple of ducks so yeah there's a lot of etiquette a lot of unwritten rules in regards to the blind and which ducks you shoot and why don't you shoot the other ones and who's responsible for bringing breakfast you know whether it's a new guy or who knows what so um and that's one of those sports too you typically need someone to mentor you into it you just don't like wake up one morning and go I'm going to go duck hunting Hey, right? I'm going to go buy all this stuff and go. A lot of times you need a way in and you just slowly acquire all of the things you need to eventually do it on your own. Um, and that's kind of where I was with it. I had someone take me out and I, I slowly acquired the right stuff, you know, a pair of waders, uh, maybe a half dozen, a dozen decoys, you know, you end up getting your dog stand, you get a dog, um, you know, so yeah, it's not the easiest to get into, but it, it can be really fun when it's right.
1: Good deal. Good deal
2: tougher question. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite to eat? Right. So that is a tough question. Um, because in a sense you could argue that many of them taste really good. Um, the short answer would probably be elk. I've never killed an elk personally, but I've had some really good friends who know I like cooking wild game, uh, have delivered me some really high quality cuts. And, uh, I can remember distinctly an elk tenderloin cut that I had made And it was the first time I'd ever really spent a lot of money on ingredients. Normally, I'm just kind of whatever's in the pantry. But I had this really pristine, nice elk tenderloin. I wanted to do it right. I remember I spent like $20 on ingredients just for the sauce. And it was like a nice (laughs) bottle of wine. It was heavy cream. It was mushrooms. It was shallots. And I mean, it was unbelievably rich and so good. So I'd probably put elk at the top of the list. Um, i give a shout-out to Doves only because – for me, like doves kind of kick off the hunting season. And so when you're eating doves, like hunting seasons here, you know, um, so
1: good deal. Good deal. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you bring up the, the doves thing. You know, being here in Michigan, we still have the idea that we can't hunt doves and it's really, really a bother. Um, I was in college when the last time they were trying to push that through, but we being in a little bit of the ag country where I'm at, like we've got a lot of dairies, and in the uh, the pigeon, the pigeon fits in really good into that dove spot, oh, and yeah. I love to chase me some of those uh, those pigeons, smack a few of them down, and yeah, poppers just seem to be the best way to serve those up, and, and yeah, just like you said, like that's a good summertime chase, just because there there isn't a season for those right now, uh, they're they're invasive, invasive, and yeah, they're feral, so it's like hey, if you can wax them, take them. So that's been a fun opportunity to be able to do.
2: For sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, here in Ohio, I know like it was back in, I think the mid nineties when we were finally able to dove hunt. So as well before my time, but I didn't get into dove hunting until I was 23, 24. I was out of college, uh, before I finally started. And, uh, but yeah, I, I like that too. I love dove hunting just because it is more social. I love doing it, you know, with, with other folks. It's easy to bring the kids along. They can go out there and be the retriever for you and stuff like that. So, um, dove hunting ranks pretty high. For me so we
1: tried to set up this uh conversation that we were going to have i i uh messaged you john and we were going to set something up and you said hey you know what let's let's push it off to next week and you know no big deal we're, we're going to make it work and you're like i i got to spend this weekend butchering five white white-tailed deer and ironically i had just finished my processing of six deer thinking that that I was the man granted I I wasn't just me I had a whole crew uh that was going to be with me but just kind of going back and forth with you you you're like yeah I got five deer to do it's it's just me and maybe I'll have one other person my wife did say that she was going to help did she step in and did she help you process those five deer
2: (laughs) yeah so uh I'll say that typically historically you know if we're lucky enough to get a deer which every year we get a deer to knock on wood and uh she doesn't really sneak her nose out there and take a peek of what's going on. Uh, but she knew I had a lot ahead of me and uh, she didn't so much help with the processing. But as you know, when you're transitioning from deer to deer or you've got everything ready and now you're using different equipment, um, there's dishes to be done. So she would, you know, help clean the meat lugs. She would help clean the grinder, the stuffer and do all that sort of stuff, which is a huge help not to have to mess with any of that. So exactly, um, yeah, huge help. So yeah, she definitely pitched in and it, it made it, uh, tolerable, I'll put it that way. It was uh, a long, it was almost probably, I don't know, four or five days off and on, uh, working on it, stopping, getting it finished. And uh, yeah, I, I hope we have to do it. I hope, you know, I run into that issue again. But uh, this year, the boys absolutely uh, laid some deer down, crazy enough. Um, so this was their, my oldest son's 11, and he went deer hunting last year, both in Missouri and Ohio. Uh, we, had, we were, like I said, all former residents of Missouri, we took advantage of their lifetime hunting options. So we have lifetime hunting and fishing permits for both me and all three of my kids. I've got a young six-year-old girl as well. Um, but last year, my oldest, um, you know, had the kind of the privilege to go out deer hunting. Uh, wasn't able to come together, he had opportunities, it just didn't work out. So this year being his second year, then my middle son turned 10, this was his time to, to get out. They both chased turkeys in the spring um, you know, we were going to have a good year, hopefully. So we started out with Ohio youth season was on the 21st and we set up a ground blind with my cousin the night before on the place in which he hunts. He got us permission and we were going to set the ground blind up and him and my middle son, were going to hunt in the blind. And it was going to be 400 yards away from us. My son and I, my oldest in the box blind, and I could see the top of their blind, but we're hunting two different areas, if that makes sense. And, uh, it was a, it was a quick morning. We had a deer walk out, um, like a little fork fiber and it was kind of on a trot in front of them. They couldn't get a shot. By the time it got to us, there was no shot presented. And it was five minutes after shooting time. So we had a long day to go. We were prepared to, prepared to sit all day. And at eight, a little after eight o'clock, this giant of a deer steps out. Um, and by the time we see it, notice it's out there. It's 160 yards away and going away. And my son's in the window and he's like, let me shoot. I'm like, you're not ready to shoot at 160 <laughs> yards like I would let him shoot at 100 yards if it was a broadside doe but because we'd practice at 100 yards right you only practice only take the shots you practice right so the day before on Thursday we were shooting at 100 yards and th- he was making killable shots but not on this deer and not to mention it was going straight towards my 10 year old like literally right to him and I'm, I'm looking at my other son I'm thinking he's about to kill this deer Adam like your, your brother's about to kill that buck and it walks over the hill and uh, long story short it my son made a, an absolute unbelievable heart shot at 60 yards the deer went 30 oh incredible. and uh, they watched it fall in the cornfield and uh, my cousin calls me and says hey dead deer I'm like don't bullshit me you know like don't mess with me he's like dead deer because I didn't hear the shot just the way the, the lay of the land and the it wind muffled it and, or something yeah yeah he was in the ground blind I'm like nah, I didn't hear a shot it's like I because you know you don't mess around about something like that and He's like, it's dead. He wants to go get it. I'm like, we'll be right down. He didn't want to mess up our hunt, you know? And, um, so we go down there and my son shot this real nice, like 140 class buck for his first deer on his first sit, you know, go figure you hear about these stories Holy all the smokes. time. He's yeah. ruined.
1: You might as well hang yeah. it up,
2: bud. <laughs> he, ruined. He's been out He's been out with me a few times on some skunkers, like where we don't even see a deer, you know, and he knows how hard I grind for does. So we had several talks about how lucky he in a sense was to get that deer. And, um, so we we got it back to the house. We caped it out. I I caped it myself. I kind of like looked at some YouTube, you know, and figured it out and we're going to put it on the wall. It'll be the second shoulder mount in the house. Mine, I shot in 2018. I haven't got it back yet, but his is bigger than mine. So we'll have the biggest deer in the house. Um, we go back out that afternoon and my, it was just me, my oldest son and my cousin. Now we're all hunting out of the same box blind, uh, that we, my son and I were hunting in in the morning. And, uh, this fawn comes out like a little after four o'clock and, uh, We watched it for like 16 minutes uh, to finally get a good shot, and uh, he laid it down and shot it through both shoulders, which I was a little bit stomach hurt about because I knew on a smaller deer and shooting it through the shoulders, there wasn't going to be much left, but first deer down, couldn't be happier, so two deer down. And all the while, I knew on Monday we were leaving for a nice extended vacation, just myself and my two boys, to go to Kansas and Missouri, uh, to deer hunt for youth deer season in Missouri, their their second youth season. And we were going to go to Kansas uh, with a former colleague of mine to chase pheasants and quail. So I spent all day Sunday breaking down the deer, uh, backpacking it, getting everything ready that I was going to grind. And I just left it in the fridge, in the meat tubs, uh, with a good solid layer of paper towels at the bottom to drain into. Um, so I knew when I got back, I had two full meat lugs full of deer. I would venture to say it was 80 pounds of ground meat. Uh, ready to be ground waiting on me. And uh, so we, we go to Missouri. Uh, it's just a layover on Monday night because uh, we're going to wake up at like four in the morning, go to Kansas to chase birds. We chase birds. We had some luck there. We come back to Missouri. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is our youth season. And we're hunting out of the same box blind, myself, and my two boys. And my oldest gets redemption on, you know, he missed a deer last year in Missouri twice, actually. Um, just kind of deer fever, if you will. So I actually ended up shooting the deer and we were able to retrieve it. And kind of, I, I kind of said, Hey man, it's just simple. Just put it there and pull the trigger, you know? Well, he gets a shot like 10 minutes after shooting time. And, uh, it's a hundred yard shot and it, the deer's perfectly broadside. I said, Adam, take your time. And the deer went 30 yards and dropped. So there's one deer and it ended up being a awesome. fall. And I went, I went down and got it. We brought it back, um, notched it. I actually field dressed it at the base of the box blind. We get back in the box blind. And I knew that the, everything would settle down and deer would start moving. Uh, crazy enough, my middle son, who loves the nap in the blind, as do I, he gets it honest. Um, my oldest never sleeps ever, never, never loses focus, which is a great asset to have, you know. And uh, he wakes my son and I up out of a dead, stone-cold nap at noon, maybe a little after noon. And uh, my son then shoots what we assumed was a doe, it ended up being a butt buck, but drops it in its tracks at 80 yards a little after 12 o'clock. So they each got deer. We take a couple of grip and grin photos. We get them back to the suburban. Um, we went back out that afternoon. Uh, they each had two tags. We weren't able to fulfill it that night. Um, we didn't have permission uh, via my buddy slash landowner to kill any small bucks, but man, did we have uh, a lot of great encounters with small deer. Uh, so that that definitely taught them some things. And then the next morning, my son lays the hammer on this huge doe. And uh, so there's three deer down. And then uh, transporting it from Ohio. sorry, from Missouri to Ohio, you have to bone out everything. No bones, no brain matter can make it out of state, uh, which I had known from the previous year because I hunted last year as my last year as a resident. And uh, so Saturday night, I bone out the two fawns. I skin them out, I bone them all out, and I let his big doe hang for, in a sense, 24 hours. But I bone them out get them in the coolers. I don't worry about trimming too much because I can mess with that when I get home. Uh, But again, it's pretty much just me. They may be holding a leg or something to kind of like keep it still. And luckily, I I lucked out with the weather. You know, it was really cold, Missouri. It was really cold while I was gone. It was cold when I got back. Um, I bone out the deer that he shot on Saturday, Sunday morning, and we're on the road at 1130 heading back to Ohio after like, you know, nine days of killing, you know. And get back to the house, I've got a Yeti 45-quart and a Yeti uh, a 45 and a 65-quart full. There's one small bag of ice in each, and uh, but in a sense, they're full. I've got the totes in the fridge from the deer the previous weekend. And uh, I didn't do anything Sunday night because I was zapped. Monday, I took off work. That was actually our Ohio deer opener for Firearm, which I didn't buy a tag. You know, we've got five deer down. Like, I'm not buying a tag. Um, And I just started working at it. And uh, I got the Ohio deer done in basically a day and a half. I think I started working on the Missouri deer maybe late Tuesday, possibly Wednesday. And uh, I finish it up. My buddy actually brings me a deer on Thursday. He went to southern Ohio to a property they own. And I helped him out last year. I don't mind helping out my buddies, you know, so we we butchered that up. And I was uh, referencing to you before we started, my uncle shot two deer in Southern Ohio, or shot one deer in Southern Ohio. His buddy shot a deer. Um, He brought them both back, goes to a processor. They're all full. And, uh, so he pretty much asked me if I'd help and I'm like, yeah, sure. Bring him over. I'm in, <laughs> Knives I'm are in, already
1: dirty. Let's go. Yeah. I,
2: I'm ready to roll. You know, like I, I I've got a, a keen eye for like what it is I'm looking for. And so I was like, you got to help me though. So he brought him over. Um, we skinned him out and, uh, the next day he come over is Sunday, this past Sunday and he come over about 11 o'clock, 1130. Uh, We got the deer quartered out, uh, all the neck meat, you know, any kind of meat we could salvage. He actually shot him through the shoulders, too. I was kind of telling him where I'd like to maybe be seeing the shots, you know. And, of course, this is the guy who taught me how to deer hunt. And uh, (laughs) I'm just like, when you see it from this side of the table, man, it's like, look how much you're wasting. Look how much now we got to spend time cleaning. And uh, But we got them all quartered out, got them in the garage. We ate lunch. And at 930, he finally pulled out the driveway. And uh, he had, I think, 77 pounds of meat. And then I had nine pounds back that I was going to make breakfast links and, um, beer brats with, and then I'll I'll get that back to him here in a couple weeks. So, you know, two does, and I think he had like mid eighties, um, possibly a little higher than that as far as finished product, but eight deer, basically, if you want to consider it from Monday to Sunday and, uh, I'm, I'm one whoop pup, man.
1: That's, that's just, that's awesome. I I love a good old fashioned butcher party where it's like all right gun seasons have happened. I talked about it on my last episode where yeah we had five like we actually had six deer lining liven themselves up both from archery. Uh, into the first week here in in Michigan for firearm, and then in fact, one of our buddies that he he does hunt, but he does he does a lot of crop farming, so he's busy doing a lot of cropping. Ends up smacking one with his grain truck, and so he he adds that to the bunch. Uh, so we had a you know good old time just with all of us being able to to partake into that. Um, but yeah, this was this was just a one man job breaking. Like you said, you had help from uh, from your uncle coming in. What's your setup enough. as you yeah. go into like, when you're, when you're, are you sitting in the garage? Are you on a folding table? Or are you, or are you kicking people out of the kitchen saying, you know what, we're bringing, we're bringing the whole thing here to the island? How, sure. what's your approach yeah. to
2: that? Yep. So if I brought it into the house, my wife would probably, uh you know, not allow me to in the house anymore, but she also keeps it like a sauna in here. So I, I keep it outside. Um, I actually have a barn uh, behind the house. That's where I have my two uh, hangers, like where I hang my deer. And um, once I break them down, I bring them into the garage. And I started processing my own deer in 2012 when I basically got sick and tired of paying 120, 140 bucks to basically just get ground meat, roast, and and steaks. Right, like that was kind of the going rate. Right. I wasn't even shooting big deer. Right. Like I first big deer do- – first doe that walks out they're getting it like it took me nine years to kill a buck and i've only killed four bucks in my 21 22 year deer hunting career you know so i'm a meat hunter and uh you know i try to hunt because it it's supposed to save money right and uh so i shot a deer that year and i said you know what the landowner i was on, he's like john we could do it in in the barn like let's just give it a shot so we did they were the same size deer I, I honestly, I bet they were brother and sister. There wasn't a lot of deer on that farm. It was a buck and a fawn that I had shot that year. And I got 37 pounds back from the processor, same size deer. did it myself. I had 45 pounds of meat. So I may have lost some things that they would have got. I may have got some things that they would have lost, but I, I did it once with like pretty much a knife. And then like, all oh, my wife's Tupperware, you know, like I had nothing. Yeah. Uh, we just made it, made it work. But and, I think at
1: that point too, there's gotta be a satisfaction level. I mean, granted, you know, you got 125 bucks still, still in your pocket, but at the same time, not just in the monetary value, but of learning something. And when you slap that sucker on the grill, or it's getting prepped up real nice to go into the oven, like I, it almost adds to the nostalgia. It almost adds to the dish, knowing that not only did it, did I get it from the field, but at the same time, like I then cut it from the carcass not only did i kill the animal but i harvested the meat at that point
2: yeah i say it adds to the flavor like it's going to taste better to you than anyone else at the table arguably right like and that's of course if you do a great job sometimes you don't do a great job into your standards you're like ah, and everyone else is like john this is amazing you know but there's times where it's not the greatest dish but you're just like so proud of that whole story that whole process it tastes amazing um but that was the only deer i did where it was kind of like I just roughed it, you know, and we made it work. The next year I made a big investment. I spent like 580 bucks and over 200 of that was on this stainless table. I bought it from Cabela's and I think it's two foot by six foot. I want to say is how big this table is. So that's kind of my setup. If it gives you an idea, it's got a shelf underneath where I could put tubs and, you know, paper towels, uh, gloves, whatever. But I've got a stainless table. I've got an outdoor edge butchering kit that I bought in 2012 and I use it on every deer. Um, I've got a couple of meat lugs. I've got three of them. I typically break the deer down. I put the quarters in one lug. I put the back straps and tenderloins and heart and neck or whatever. And the middle one. And I will say you know, the heart, like a lot of times it's already in the fridge. I am the type of guy that I always feel dress in the field. I don't like bring it back and hang it. I did that one time with a roadkill that I got a salvage tag for. I was like, yeah, they do this on TV. I'll try to gut it with it hanging up. <laughs> and it looked like a scene out of Dexter or something. Oh, I, I went in and I did something. Next thing you know, there's an air pocket or something. And all the blood turned and somehow came out of the carcass and on the floor. And I, I reached into the house. I said, uh, honey, don't come out here for a while. Because if she would have seen it, she would have lost it. I mean, Yeah, she would just lost her mind. It looked awful. So, uh, so anyways, they're already, they're already dressed and, uh, I put them in the lugs and I typically start on like the worst, uh, I say the worst, like the hardest part. Like I love working on the hind quarters. I think they're really, uh, the easier of, you know, they're easier than the front. The front shoulders I'm, I'm of course fist back...
1: pumping in the air saying amen to what you're saying oh, yeah. right now keep keep going with what you're saying
2: yeah the back straps are easy and I, I definitely like you know trimming up the back straps but you know like I think uh, Hank Shaw said on his uh, page here like you know you get in there it's like a present you know and it's like so you're just unwrapping each muscle uh, but I typically start with the front shoulders or the stuff that needs the most cleaning so I'll try to go in and get as much brisket you non know, off oftentimes right the size of the deer matters right if you shoot a fawn there's going to be muscles that are not available that are on a big buck. There was neck muscles on my son's buck that I've never seen before. Uh, (laughs) He was so thick and uh, just, it was, it was unbelievable how much meat was on that deer. Um, But I get all the the dirty bloody stuff uh, processed. I've got a trash can next to me. Um, I wear latex gloves. I have a paper towel typically in front of me that I kind of use to keep my gloves dry and clean. So if I get a, if I pick a hair or if I've got some really gooey blood, uh, I kind of just massage my hand in that glove to keep my glove clean and uh, just ready for the next deal. And then as I'm trimming stuff that goes in the trash can, it's just right at my side. I wear an apron. Um, and oftentimes I may kind of use my apron as a fiddle. I'll like play it with my gloves to like keep the glove dry. So my, my apron looks bloody as can be when I'm done. Um, but it just keeps, you know, once I get the, the hair off the meat, I want it to stay off the meat, right? So you got to get it off your glove. Um, I break it down and And then that's when I use my back sealer. Uh, I'm a back sealer guy. Some people are butcher paper and whatnot. I love love my back sealer. Um, Get that out of the way. And then I typically finish with ground meat and brats and summer sausage, all which I've started in the last couple of years. This is my second season for cased meats like brats and Italian sausage and so on. And then I've been doing summer sausage now for three seasons. Um, I was, for the first, what, four or five years, I was just doing ground steaks and roasts, you know? And each year I've just like, I could do something different. You know, like, well, oh, I really want to try this. Like this year I did ground meat jerky crazy enough for the first time. I did breakfast links with sheep casings for the first time. And I did snack sticks for the first time. Those were all things that i would never done before. Whether it's one, because I really don't prefer ground meat jerky or snack sticks over summer sausage or muscle jerky. And two, I never had enough deer to justify making all that stuff, right? Like we eat almost exclusively, wild game at our house. We do buy chicken. Occasionally we'll buy pork, but as far as red meat goes, it's deer meat, ducks, goose, you know, et cetera. Um, So when you get five deer and your kids lay them down, I end up putting like 200 pounds of meat away. Mind you, three of those deer were fawns. Uh, One was a nice doe and one was a two and a half year old buck. So I got 200 pounds of meat. That includes 20% pork fat on a portion of that. And uh, it feels pretty damn good. It's hard work, but I have got a lot of product in my freezer from pleasurable stuff that I could take to the duck blind or I can take in the field or I can take to the holidays or whatever, to, you know, quality meals for the whole year.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. I The, the part where I was definitely like rah-rah-go is where you start with the worst parts first. You know, you, you, at that point, you're you're taking the ribs out. You're you're working on the front quarters because they do. They take the most time. They take the most effort, and you want to be your freshest. Guys will will take that apart, and oh, I want to see those back straps. Like, no, 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 no. That's you're yeah. gonna see that later. We're gonna have that at the end of the night. That that's the the moment where you keep guys around. Um, exactly. When we were when we were taking part deer, it was I'd start. You know, once we'd skin it out, first thing I was putting on the table was the rib sections and the the shoulders and you could hear the guys that were cutting They're you know they're cutting they're like no no give me a leg you know give me a give me a hind quarter like no you're not getting those yet finish what you're doing there first I had to treat them like my students there I had to you know oh, are you sure slow them down a little bit but like you just like you were saying like yeah start with the hard part first you're fresh you're ready to go um And I I liked how you're saying too, we were, we were just chatting earlier before we started recording and you had mentioned like taking that table and bringing it up as, as high as you could. Um, All the stuff that I have in my shop is at counter height, you know, 36 inches. And I can tell you working a couple years ago on a folding table that was not lifted. I'm not a tall guy. I'm, I'm five, eight. I'm a, I'm a short squat but at the same time, like my buddy next to me, who's like 6'3", he's almost dying because his back yeah. is just about ready to give <laughs> out. And, you know, you, you bring up a chair and it's just not the right height. You, you, know, you feel like you got to stand so you can get some extra oomph behind that blade. And it was like, no, no, there's, there's got to be a better way. And so, so, yeah, all of our stuff now is up to 36 inches. And I tell you, it, it saves us, you know, we still think we're young guns. We really think we're real, real young, uh, spry guys, but yeah, after, after a full night of cutting, you definitely start feeling it in the neck, the back and even the hamstrings. I find like the hammies really get a beating after a good night of cutting.
2: Sure. Yeah. I don't know how high my table is, but it would be what I would call standard height. It's not anything, uh, you know, made for this use. And I've, I've got like a, a plastic table from Bass Pro that is in a sense, a little higher. It's a fillet table, but I don't like cutting my deer on it. Cause it's kind of that plastic. Uh, it's got like a little texture to it. So the the redness, the blood, etc., is a little harder to get out than that nice stainless table. But yeah, we extended the legs. Um, I was like, Hey, let's extend these before it was before me and my uncle, I went through seven deer. And then I finally get to my uncle's. And I'm like, Hey, Let's extend these legs out. <laughs> it, it, it made the table a little bit wobbly, but we we risked it because it made the table almost two inches higher. And I told him, I said, I think what I'm going to do next year is put the legs, in a sense, back in their normal, sturdy positions. And I'm going to set the table on a stack of two-by-fours, you know, like or some, some sort of mechanism where I'm going to put it up five, six inches yeah. um, from where it's at now because it's 100% worth your body language. So my buddy both my uncle and my buddy who both helped process their deer. And I say helped, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm doing 80, 90% of the lift in here, um, but they're trimming, you know, they're, they're finishing off some things to make it look nice for this pile or that pile. And it's no doubt helpful, you know, but their knife skills aren't quite there and this and that. And my one buddy, he's just, he's like leaning over the table. He's trying to stretch. I'm like, Hey man, stick with it. You know, cause I have a pretty high quality of standard as far as what we leave in the pile, what we don't. I've definitely come off of like a really, really um, meticulous mindset. I got rid of that a couple of years ago because I just, I'm already slow at doing this anyways. So I think I let a pretty decent bit of stuff slide. Just not the real big waxy fat and not the real thick silver skin. If it's super thin, but it's like widespread, doesn't bother me a bit. But if it's thick in any capacity or it's waxy fat, it's got to go. And his, you know, he's just struggling. And I told him, I was like, you know, this is when you got to buckle down, because next thing you know, you're like, screw it, it's fine, just put it in the pile. And next thing you know, you look at your pile, and there's just white and everything all the way over there. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm there. I was like, I know you are. That's why I'm bringing it up. I said, like, I'm there, too. You know, but if in a sense, if you start out at a high quality, there's no doubt that towards the end, you may start to realize, hey, that's fine to put in a pile. And in all honesty, it is. I probably should challenge myself to really not do as much trimming and see if I even notice a difference in the texture or taste Um, because I do believe that a large part of the taste factor comes from the fluid that's in the muscle. If you can drain that out over the course of a couple of days, whether it's in the fridge or if the weather allows, and I'm not talking about hanging in the garage, that definitely helps. I'm saying though, once you cut it off the carcass, if you could allow those muscles to bleed and get that fluid out of there and replace the paper towels as needed, you'll see a tremendous difference in the taste and quality of your meat.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, just like out of any cryovac piece of meat that, you know, either even if you get the domestic, um, when, they take yep, sure. a, when they take a piece of ribeye and they put it in that cryovac and then it goes and sits on the shelf in the cooler for there for a while, a they bring that back out, you have that meat purge that's all in there. You've got, yep. you know, some of it's blood, some of it's water, but the, there's just a lot of fluid in there that could be enzyme-based, that could be, you know something some you know urea from lymph whatever that is it's going to be coming out of that meat and so the same thing you get that in a piece of venison yeah you you let it hang there for a couple of days and it does drain some meat or excuse me drain drain out but then yeah even if you vacuum seal it you come back you got a little bit of purge in there you know that's a that's a little bit of a good thing you know you're not losing a ton of moisture off of it at that point as far as taste goes or tenderness goes oh yeah but at the same time like to rid it of maybe some more of that mitochondria. That's going to be that irony taste that, that people are used to.
2: And whether it's waterfowl, whatever, like I've been, you know, schooled in the sense that that's where the flavor lives. Like on ducks, for example, you know, you got puddle ducks like mallards and pintails and you've got your, your diving ducks, which obviously historically don't taste as well. Well, whatever that is they're eating, it lives in that fluid. Like that's where the flavor comes from generally speaking. Um, So if you get rid of that, it's just going to give it a much cleaner taste And again, you as the hunter, you as the processor, you as the griller, you're not gonna uh, realize it as much. But for me, uh, and probably like most everybody else, they're probably introducing people to wild game for the first time, or they've got in-laws who you've been trying to trick into eating it for years. Uh, They're gonna, you know, that's how you're gonna sway them into being at least, maybe not an advocate, but at least someone who tolerates it and or is a, you know, you've converted them over to a wild game lover, you know, at that point.
1: You bet. You bet. So we're jumping into the month of, here we are, we're actually starting in the month of December. My kids are freaking out about Christmas. Uh, We've got the elf. He is on the shelf. He keeps moving around, and we're getting ready for Christmas. I don't know what exactly 2020 Christmas is going to look like uh currently we just got our mini shutdown our pause takes us up to the 20th i want to say you can have two households of six to eight people i could be grabbing that out of the air i don't even know exactly what all of our our regiment is now um but at the same time there are going to be friends and family that eventually we see or that i we would want to be able to take some treats to you just got done with it with a huge grind fest when it came to making grind, making uh, summer sausage, which is a mainstay in your house. And then you recently got into, just like you were saying a minute ago, uh, just these past couple of years, getting into making um, snack sticks. These are amazing things that you can have around the holidays as a charcuterie board or a, you know, a cheese platter. This is some stuff that can go around to a small group of people or even a large group if you're choosing to to go that route talk to me a little bit about your transition from summer sausage that you know into sticks that you're really starting to dive into
2: sure yeah so um i can tell you from our side for christmas uh, my grandparents have already kind of said hey we're not going to have it this year so we may or may not have, you know, a close relative or maybe a close family over that we're friends with just to kind of at least share it with someone, but you know, time will tell, I guess. But uh, on a general normal year um, I do typically try to take summer sausage or jerky or something like that just to pass around. And most of my family and in-laws generally speaking, aren't hunters like they're pro hunting. They're in a hunting family, but for whatever reason, whether they're busy or, you know, they've got kids, whatever their reasons may be, um, so I, I'm their resource for all things, you know, wild game. And uh, so those are always crowd pleasers. Um, this year, I'd definitely be looking forward to taking some of the snack sticks, um, you know, over there. That's just so accepted. You know, like you can really, it's just a great way to, I guess, if you to call it hiding the venison. But um, really good. I can tell you what I've had success with in the past uh, because it's where you really take skeptics and turn them into believers is uh, goose pastrami. So uh, meat eater has a recipe. I I follow Hank Shaw's uh, hunter angler gardener cook recipe for goose pastrami and it's great warm but it's also just great cold and sliced up super thin. Again put it on a board with cheese and crackers and people can't get enough of it. Um, Also smoked duck. So I've been uh, taking my mallards brining them in this high mountain brine which absolutely transitions them into one of the best things you've ever eaten. I'm not joking when I say that, Um, but you just simply take it right out of the backpack and slice it right in front of them and give it to them and it's got the fat on it and everything. They're super suspect. They eat it and they're literally mind blown. Um, And I've made a couple of posts about that and if you haven't tried brining your, your waterfowl and again whether you're using the high mountain brine or you're just finding a brine online, it will absolutely take your waterfowl to another level. And waterfowl doesn't, you know, it's not as palatable as venison. Like I, my wife and I have been together for like over 18 years and, you know, she's finally getting to the point where she's serving herself seconds for venison and she's in, like, she'll oblige me by eating the waterfowl, but she's not going back for seconds. But on this smoked duck and on this goose pastrami, she'll eat it about like anything else. It's really um, something to look into for sure. Um, and you just do it low and slow on the smoker, you know, for like four hours. And it's just a, it, it gets a nice pink hue to it when you use this high mountain one. It look it looks pretty and it tastes great. Um, I, we typically definitely don't have a wild game as an appetizer because we're a pretty traditional family in the sense, whether we have a big ham or like even last year, I hosted Christmas at my house and I served a big, huge turkey on the camp chef and, uh, you know, everyone loved it, but we had actually uh, beef Wellington as an appetizer, because again, backstraps last year were pretty prime. Like I didn't have a ton of them. So I made two logs of Wellington and I sliced them up real small and then even took those slices and put them into quarters. And then kind of, I don't say I used toothpicks. It was like just, Hey, all man, woman and child for themselves, grab it off the cutting board, you know, Um, and that was a hit. And then do yourself a favor and look up um, sausage stars. Just go to Google and type in sausage star and you can use ground venison ground venison sausage and you put it inside a wonton wrapper in a muffin tin and the wonton wrapper when you stuff it in there kind of gets some points to it you know like a four star point and you stuff it with cheese and peppers and olives and onions and deer meat and just more cheese and ranch dressing I think like dry ranch dressing mix and it just makes a nice little finger food appetizer and it looks great and uh, it's very accepted by again anybody picky eaters will eat it you know so That's kind of what, what I'm looking forward to, uh, when I'm taking stuff to uh, the holidays. Good deal. Yeah.
1: I just brought up the, uh, uh, sausage stars right here. Oh yeah. That says cream cheese goodness all over it. This is, this is a Midwest win right here inside of the, the wonton wrapper. That's awesome. Um, I'm glad you, you, you went into all that, um, being like sticks that you made earlier. Um, you know you you're, you're going to bring those and um getting into the the beef wellington that you were, you were even bringing um that was a big home run that I did last year and uh, i'm i'm sure my listeners are going to remember the detail that i went to that i was really stoked about that and basically that's basically take i took tenderloin and seared it and then i had a, a mushroom paste that i then hit all the way around it and then I had the whole thing then wrapped in – I actually went far enough to say that I went and got prosciutto. I didn't even go with uh, bacon at that point. I went with full-on prosciutto. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then you're wrapped do it. that whole thing in puff pastry. and
2: Yeah, so that's something you're not going to make on a Wednesday, right? No, uh, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's something that I typically do once a year, and if I'm not making it for Christmas – Um, I typically do it either on New Year's Day or somewhere close to New Year's Day. Uh, My wife comes from a strong Polish family, so they always like to eat like pork and uh, sauerkraut or pork and cabbage, something like that on on the New Year's Day. But uh, I typically try to sway her into a really nice dish um, like that. But you want to talk about, yeah, a crowd pleaser and kind of a wow factor. Um, It takes a little bit of time. It's not hard. It just takes time. Um, And, you know, it took me years. It was on the short list to do. And I finally did it, I think, probably three years ago. And I think I've probably made it two or three times. I think I'm probably due to make it uh, the third or fourth time here soon. Um, Definitely any sportsman should try it if you're kind of in a small comfort zone and you want to really get out of it with something that's going to taste great and probably familiar to you, to be honest. You know, spend a little bit of money on nice mushrooms, nice shallots, uh, the prosciutto, but it'll be well worth it. I am um,
1: fully on with that board on on board with that. I paired mine with a Hollandaise sauce, and that was definitely if you go onto YouTube, holy smokes, you find 30 different recipes for Hollandaise, and each one of them will shock you as how much butter and egg go into that. You're like, oh, I am definitely not gonna feel good tomorrow. Yeah. But you're gonna feel great as it goes down dab, you know, dabbing that uh, that Wellington into that hollandaise. You'll definitely appreciate it then.
2: So I, I need to do that. We did not have a sauce for ours, you know, and it, it carried its own, but it definitely could have used the sauce. And we actually have chickens here at the house. And uh, we've been in this house right now for a little over a year. We've got some chickens and, you know, yeah, you eggs. We, you know, I like, wait, when I got all these eggs. What am going to do? So I, I learned how to make hollandaise during the first part of quarantine. And I was in like this honeymoon phase where I was putting it on eggs benedict I was putting it on this I was putting it on that and I, I made it like probably 10 out of 14 days I'd wake up and make a holidays next thing you know I realized how much butter I was using and not so much for the health factor but you know we use real butter so it was expensive It was starting to get expensive and uh, so I'm due to uh, to make it again and again that's something that wasn't it was intimidating but wasn't terribly hard to do and uh, you may have inspired me to uh, put a holiday sauce next time I make that
1: Oh, dude. Yeah. You, th- you throw those together. You're definitely going to sleep good and yeah, you'll be very happy not with your waistline, but you'll bet definitely be happy with, with what you ate. So I'm going to throw, sure. throw my idea that I have for this year and I've started it in the fact that, um, I had a, I had a salvage tag. I had a roadkill deer that I'm also going with my normal hashtag of savage tag. That's what this thing is. Um, I really appreciate being alongside the road. And as I'm either picking the deer up or quartering it out, there, there's always someone that either gives, there, there's two types of honks. There's either like the hard blaring <laughs> yeah. honk of like, get out of here, you redneck scum. And then there's the other, like, it's like a little toot, like dig, dig nabbit. You beat me to it. Good job. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I took the hindquarters off this, uh, this button buck, I got the back straps out. We had those tonight, actually. That was that was great. I rather than freezing them, I was just like, hey, let's just have the fresh back backstraps. Um, but I took the hindquarters, and a friend of mine, and actually, he was a he was a guest on our here our show here, Shane Ball, uh, up from Canada. He posted a video of doing a whole boned out leg of lamb, and as I was watching his video, uh, seeing what he was doing, I was like. Man, this is a super easy transfer over into venison. Like, I'm I'm envisioning, even though he keeps saying lamb, in the back of my head, I'm like, that's a leg, or excuse me, yeah, he says lamb, but I can, I just look at it, and it looks like a venison leg. I'm like, we can do this. Um. So, basically, to wrap it up in a nice package, you take the femur out and the haunch or the the shank you don't want to leave the shank in there because you want as much uh connective tissue taken out and you want the the bones taken out of this thing so you're Mm -hmm. left with those four uh large primals that are now just held together with connective tissue i'm right with you yep and at that point you would then season both the inside and outside roll this thing together and then tie it tightly that would then he called it dry brining, but basically you season this whole thing up and then you let it sit for 24 hours yep. in your in your fridge, let everything do its magic, low and slow into the oven. You're aiming for, he called it medium, but again, he was working with lamb and there was a lot of uh, fat already worked into that lamb. So he was going for a medium. I think I'm going to take mine to a medium rare. I'm going to back it off about 10 degrees and anyway be able to serve a whole leg of venison um it's always been one of those like gorgeous looking things that you see either on a magazine where it's either a leg of lamb or a a big prime rib granted that's a, a singular muscle but i thought about taking this uh this venison leg and going full in christmas going clove allspice Uh, Mm -hmm. orange zest. I really think I'm going to add, I want to add a bunch of that citrus in there, touch a cayenne, you know, salt that sucker out. I think that is going to be just an amazing display at a Christmas table. What do you think of that idea? And maybe what are some things that I should really be thinking about as I'm putting that together?
2: Yep. A couple things. One, it sounds amazing. Uh, I've got two exact cuts like that from a small deer, an incredibly small fawn that I shot last year. It's actually one that my son missed. And I said, Adam, watch. And I shot this deer. I drug it back to the blind. It probably weighed 45 pounds on the hoof, Um, but a lesson had to be learned there. And uh, so I I boned out exactly what you're saying. I've got him in the freezer and you may, you know, keep me posted on that. I was going to do, a, uh, I've been seeing a lot of people make hams, right? Like uh, using some sort of cure and they're making a ham. Uh, so I'm going to try that with one of them. And then of course I've got the other one. So let me know how yours turns out. But one thing I would tell you to consider, because it came up in a conversation with my uncle, uh, you had mentioned just good quality time around the table. It was definitely a good time spent with my uncle to just talk about, you know, whatever comes up, you know. Uh, but we were talking about processors doing deer versus you doing it yourself. And he had referenced that typically his deer steaks are kind of what I call the ham steak, where it's every cut and got the bone in the center, right? It's like one of my hugest pet peeves, right? (laughs) They've just gone to the bandsaw and just ripped it through. There's so much connective stuff in there. But in all honesty, you know, when you break that open and you get right where that bone is and you fillet that back and right underneath that top round, there's that big like uh, femoral artery, and there's a huge chunk of fat, and there's a lymph, there's a lymph node in that big chunk of fat.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so you're going to want to make sure you come in there, try to get a good portion of that uh, artery out, that big fatty chunk in that lymph node. And outside of that, I don't think there's really much else you have to consider. Um, you know. And then I'm with you on the dry brine. I did the same thing with that turkey last year for Christmas. I just used kosher salt because uh, I wanted to keep it simple, but you just put that on there. Uh, leave it uncovered in the fridge on a drying rack so it can all drain away. And it, it was pretty heavenly as far as keeping the moisture in the animal. So I think that's definitely the way to go. And he's using the right terminology there. So um, it should be a hit. And I was telling someone the other day, uh, they kind of wrote me on a private message and says, Hey, how would you smoke this deer roast? And they were just like, man, I was really afraid I'd mess it up. It turned out really good. You know? And I was like, it's really hard to truly mess something up bad to where you can't eat it. You know, like, Did you overcook it? Sure. You know, is it not ideal? Maybe. Um, But it's still going to be edible and you've learned for the next time, you know. So uh, I think you'll do great and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing how that goes.
1: Good deal. Good deal. Yeah, I'll make sure to keep you and the listeners uh, up on that. We're going to try and get a write-up of that if it turns out to be a home run. Uh, Because, yeah, it's going to be one of those things that, I mean, I got it off of a salvage deer, so I have no emotional attachment. And so that's where I really feel like I can be this mad scientist right now and, uh, and play with it. Um, So
2: I've, I've got a buddy, I've, I've had a couple of salvage tags over the years and uh, a good buddy of mine, Jeremiah has his from field to plate, uh, Instagram page. And, uh, so I was using that hashtag. I still use it, but, uh, there for a while I was using from road to plate. Um, So if you you go a hashtag from road to plate, you'll see a couple of my, uh, salvage tag concoctions, um, as well. So, take
1: a look. I am typing that out in my notes right now. We're going to make this the next big viral thing. Road to plate. Yes. That is now going to make it onto all my stuff. (laughs) I love it, John.
2: Yeah. Put, put from road, uh, from road to plate, uh, in front of it
1: from road
2: uh, to plate.
1: So folks, if you're bored, hashtag from road to plate, I'm sure you're going to get some great Great images that pop up. <laughs> there's
2: there's only a couple that pop up, but uh, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> and uh, you'll see the one picture because I I like to tell. I'm a dad. I got three kids. I I tell really really corny dad jokes, and uh, a lot of times I'll just write simply on the the backpack. I'll put roadkill, and uh, as I'm thawing it out, she'll kind of give me the look like, "What's for dinner?" And I'll just flash it to her, and she's just like, "Oh my god, you're disgusting!" You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, good times. Good times.
1: I yeah. The wife goes in there every once in a while, and I tried to play it nice, so I've got my own code. So I put Sally, if it's a doe, for salvage, and then Sal, if it's a buck. So that's my distinction. So she's like, why do you name your deer Sal and Sally? I was like, eh, don't don't worry about it.
2: Yeah, sometimes it's better to them to not know, uh, you know, why we, I I tell her sometimes, like, you don't want to come out here, you know, or she'll get, she'll see something. I'm like, if you only knew where my glove and or knife or whatever has been through this whole process, uh, just, you know, I always tell you, you don't want to know how sausage was made, you know, like, don't ask questions, just enjoy the food. Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah, love your ignorance right now. Yes, yes. Well hey, I played my holiday cards. I threw it out there. I'm told you what I'm going to do and I was hoping you'd give me some pointers and you definitely did. So thank you. I've I'm I'm written those down to definitely check up on. But I want to talk I want I want you to explain your holiday ham. We are now entering our two dish breakdown. This is the crescendo here of of our program. And actually my first one was my first question for you was going to be Christmas dinner. What's on the menu? and so you're talking about your, uh, your venison ham, explain the process that you're going to go with what, what's going in the brine. You're going with a type of cure at this point. Uh, is it going to be smoked, unsmoked?
2: Run us through what it's going to be. I'm going to run you through what I believe I know. So I haven't looked into it a lot, but I, I honestly believe it's going to be quite simple. So I am, in fact, going to get the High Mountain Mountain Seasoning uh, brand, their ham uh, seasoning, and in a sense, I'm just going to follow the package, which I would assume is taking that, mixing it with water, setting that ham in there for what I would assume would be a period of days, uh, whether it's four to seven, I don't know. Uh, You'll probably have to rotate it back and forth throughout the days, Um, but I can tell you it's definitely going to go on the Camp Chef. Uh, I've got a Camp Chef woodwind pellet grill. Uh, which is super awesome. And um, I was actually able to, uh, I can look at how it's cooking on my phone and see what temperature it's at, how much time I've got, things like that. So it makes it really nice and uh, a lot of room for error. And I feel like a venison ham is something, as far as cooking goes, it's going to be very hard to, again, mess up. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so a lot of room for error, but I'm going to be making a venison ham. That'll be the first time I've made it. Um, typically, I don't typically try to serve a dish for the first time. Uh, especially when guests are over. But again, I don't think we'll have a terrible amount of guests over, um, if any. So um, I'm going to go for it. Uh, but I do know as a backup option, um, it's not wild game, but I will be having uh, a store-bought turkey. Um, I didn't kill a turkey this spring. or I, you know, I have plucked and eaten a jake one year for uh, for uh, Thanksgiving. Um, but I will buy, I have a store-bought turkey spatchcocked on the Camp Chef as well with that uh, kosher salt dry brine. Um, so I have two entrees, um, and then we'll have, we may have an appetizer, uh, again, if anything else, it'd be that smoked duck, but it's just going to be a couple of us. We're going to have so much meat. I probably won't deal with, um, with any wild game appetizers. We have, you know, kind of traditional sides. My wife typically handles those. Um, she makes a glazed carrot. That's really good. Um, and we call cracked potatoes They're like cheesy hash brown potatoes with a dry ranch mix in there, onions, cream of chicken soup. Um, with french fried onions on top of it. You bake that in the oven. Um, oh man, that's a it,
1: super dish from the Midwest right there. Yeah, all the it, buzzwords were there. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's comfort food 101. Um, like it's super rich. Like I love rich, uh, indulgence foods. Like I, I'm i not an unhealthy eater by any means, but I'm not a clean eater. You know, like I, I want to eat good stuff. You know, our, our side sometimes, like I, I'm not, I don't mind eating a salad. I eat salads quite a bit. Um, of course, you know, venison is pretty lean, but oftentimes we're using real butter. Uh, a lot of it, um, you know, we're using sour cream, ranch dressing. Um, and man, it is, I could eat it up. I, I get it. I eat it till I'm sick some nights. Like I'll eat on the holidays, especially if I'm cooking it, like I'm eating until I'm sick and, uh, I'll eat leftovers the next day. Very happily.
1: Perfect. Perfect. At that point you can watch, you know, Cincy or Cleveland, whichever, whichever your vice is continue sure, to, yep. to lose their games hey and now, I can say I'm, that because I'm a Lions fan so
2: <laughs> but hey so I'm, I'm a Browns fan uh, converted back in probably 2012 when Carson Palmer and the whole lockout situation I, I flipped from a lifelong Bengals fan and I went over to a real winner you know whenever the Browns and uh, that was when the Bengals ran off five straight playoff seasons and uh, you know go figure but uh, the Browns you know if you haven't been paying attention they're like what nine and three so, I know uh, they've
1: come out of there. Baker, man. I tell you, uh, he's taken, taking the reins. He's in his own right now.
2: So hopefully he, he's a He's the type of guy that absolutely needs to have his confidence oozing out of him. Um, if he's not fully confident, you know, who knows what you're going to get, but we've still played the jets. We play God awful. Some the giants, we play the giants and the jets, the Steelers, I think the Ravens is our last four games. The Ravens are banged up. Then we play the Giants. Then we play the Jets. We could be twelve and one, or sorry, not twelve and 1, 12 and three, to go and play the Steelers. If who if they've lost a game or two, uh, we could be winning the division. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if they they the Browns typically haven't had an invite to play on Christmas or Thanksgiving for for many moons. But uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be watching something. Our, at our family, we typically play cards or play foosball stuff like that. Good deal. Good deal.
1: Okay, I'm going to shift gears. It's kind of a hard shift. Um, it's going to be date night now. So let's say before Christmas, the kids are are gone. They're, they're off to grandma and grandpa's or a friend's house, and they're out of the house. Dogs are put away. Pets are put away. It's just you and the wife, and you're trying to make this night special. You want to really rekindle that love there, and you're going to cook a dinner. But it's got to include the only thing that you have available right now is wild game, which I'm sure your freezers. You just talked oh, yeah, about 200 it. pounds that we just yep. threw in there. But now it's wild game. It it's open to what uh, to your selection doesn't have to be just venison. Can can uh, leak over to the uh, the upland birds or the waterfowl. Um, but you got to make a dinner that's going to make this date go just right. What are you going to be serving on this day night?
2: Yep, so it's a no-brainer, um, you know, and venison uh, whitetail specifically runs, uh, you know, they're the king in this house. So it will be uh, what I call either the center cut of the backstrap. So I, I did a breakdown recently. I have what I call the flat, which is uh, near the ham, the center cut, and then the upper or what I call the venison tail. So you know, that cut that goes up into the neck there, I call that the tail of the back strap uh, or the upper. So it'll either be the upper or the center cut but if i have two high quality uh tails or that uh that skinnier tender portion i'm making those and i'm making hank shaw's steak diane recipe Ooh, um, tell so, me more
1: oh i love this recipe tell me more so, tell me more so
2: steak diane is a very classic steak sauce um that you you know basically make with a concoction of stuff that you wouldn't think would taste good but it's uh, worcestershire i think Dijon mustard yellow mustard Maybe it's just maybe it's just design. I think it's Dijon Mustard Worcestershire tomato paste. Um, brandy is in there, uh, heavy cream, uh, shallots, and you make this unbelievable sauce. And basically your backstrap, I I've really got in love with reverse searing, uh, really any of my steaks, but specifically backstrap. So I'll, I'll put it in my camp chef for 15 to 20 minutes at like 275. I'll pull it out and I'll sear the backstrap in um you know, hot canola oil. Maybe throw some butter in there, some rosemary if I've got it. Uh, but I'm searing it, getting a beautiful crust and it's mid rare in the center and let that rest. And uh, typically you could do it in the same pan, but um, you know, you pull it out and that's when you put your shallots in, you put your beef stock in, you cook your beef stock down, you put your brandy in, you cook that down Then you add in the mustard, the tomato paste, um, that kind of stuff. Add that in there, your Worcestershire, and then you add your heavy cream to make it a lighter sauce and not as, I um, will say harsh, but I'm not, a, I'm not a great wordsmith. But look it up, Steak Diane. It's a beautiful sauce. You, we finish it. You can finish it with a couple of different garnishes, but we use basil. So a little bit of basil on top with this beautiful sauce, mid-rare steak. Um, typically, when I make that dish, I really like to make the cream spinach. My wife and I, or one of the others, will make it. It's a classic steakhouse side dish. Uh, we've made it really, really terrible sometimes, but we've also really, really made it good. So we've got to kind of hone in on that. Uh, but cream spinach, probably those cracked potatoes I was telling you about before and, uh, a nice mid rare, uh, steak, Diane, uh, that would be my go-to to impress the lady.
1: I tell you that, that is a home run recipe. I, it was probably my third year into being a hunter that I, that I really kind of like took up the torch of i if I'm going to get the, get an animal, I'm going to make it to the best of my ability and yeah, found Hank. And that was actually the first recipe that came up. And I tell you, as far as getting my wife on board with wild game, she, that, that whole recipe won her over to be able to like, all right, he did a good job on that one. Let me try the next one. So I was, you know, that's an awesome dish to go with. And yeah, if, yeah, I'm just, well, I'm applauding you saying like, that's my dish that I would go with. And I'm glad to hear that you're going with the same.
2: Yeah, man, it's it's a winner. Um, and you know, again, it's not it's not hard to mess up. The ingredients are fairly easy. That's the only reason I have brandy in the house. It's not that I'm a non drinker. I definitely don't drink brandy, but there's always a bottle of brandy in the house because we use it for goose pastrami and for steak dine-in.
1: I did find. Um, no, it wasn't Hank. It was uh, if you're if you're a big YouTuber, Chef John. Uh, with food wishes he's uh he's got a channel on there and he's got one that's a uh a bourbon pepper sauce and it's kind of a spin off of the diane sauce very very similar in its first start of it where it starts out as a pan sauce you've already seared your your back strap in it so you've got a fond built up and uh you do start instead of with the brandy you go with a bourbon and it's a little bit more heavier on the cream. And then you actually used a crack pepper as opposed to like a ground pepper. You actually take your whole big difference. piece and mm-hmm. you crack that in there, um, smash it either more pestle or even just with a, with a cast iron pan, drop that in. And I tell you, it, interchangeable of those two sauces, like the same premise, reverse sear, uh, get it into that sauce, just be able to drape it on both sides. Man, oh man, it's a winner. That's a it's a great setup Mm -hmm. well john we've been chatting here for well over an hour now on wild game how do we hunt it how do we uh cut it up and then how do we serve it to friends and family and the closest ones to us this has been a, a great time um where can my listeners go and find more where can they follow you uh in all the amazing dishes that you're making
2: yeah. Thanks for having me on. I uh, definitely enjoyed it uh, on Instagram is where I, I could be found most times uh, wild game cook and on Facebook, I typically share the same content when I'm, when it makes sense to, uh, but on Facebook, it's the wild game cook and um, don't hesitate to uh, comment or uh, send me a message. If you got a question or you're just now reaching into something or uh, whatever it may be, I try to just uh, put things on there that I think, you know, most common sportsmen are, uh, you know, getting into. So uh, I've been there, you know, I'm, I'm no uh, expert chef by any means. I'm just a home cook. Um, learning as I go.
1: Good deal. Hey, I saw a post uh, that you were putting on the, you're still trying to create a logo for, uh, for your page and for, for your brand is, is a beard incorporated with this oh. logo
2: it's up and it's up there uh i I really uh take a lot of pride in growing a beard um you know i I got the ability to do it i'm blessed on both sides of my family and i typically am always growing one i typically will start over at some point within the year but uh it 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 could be uh it's on the short list um i may just keep it simple uh with with the words themselves uh with something intertwined in there to make it a little eye-catchy but Uh, there's no doubt if, you know, if I end up getting a brand and I take it to the next step, which whatever that is, but if I get a t-shirt made, I mean, there's there's no doubt there'll be a graphic with uh, a beard and a a gun or something, a beard and knife, we'll figure it out, but yeah, that was, I got a lot of great feedback, and I I haven't exactly taken off with uh, anything just yet, I'm kind of of a procrastinator, so uh, perfectionist too, I guess, you know, it can't be, I can't mess it up if I don't follow through with it, so I need to follow through with it and and, uh, keep keep fleshing that
1: out gotcha gotcha i'll keep reminding you that you got there you go i'd there.
2: appreciate it man i need a little nudge every once in a while
1: <laughs> good deal well hey john go ahead and just hold on for a second i'm going to send our listeners on out folks as we prepare for these holidays whatever they're going to look like whether they're going to be uh gatherings via digital and small gatherings uh here and there or whether you're taking the risk and going outside and being uh, a huge gathering Folks, just make sure that uh, when you bring Wild Game, that you put your best foot forward, that not only are you going to be putting the whole hunting community on your back, there's a little bit of pressure, but at the same time that you're also adding in the love that you want to be able to share uh, with the guests that you're there. You're making this because you appreciate them, and you're putting in the effort into something you love to share with someone you love. So enjoy the holidays. Enjoy bringing something to the table. But whatever you're doing, always keep your knives sharp.